Good morning. It's good to see all of you here on a beautiful Sunday morning when there is no rain. How fabulous is that? It is nice. And I may also say to you, happy St. Patrick's Day to you this morning. Some of you out there are all bedecked in your green uh, today, and I've got a little on myself. You know, uh, in our culture, St. Patrick's Day is normally associated with parties and parades and shamrocks and all other kinds of things that unfortunately I think that it leaves the story for why St. Patrick's Day is, is sort of an important day. It sort of leaves it um, unknown uh, for many of us. Uh, we celebrate St. Patrick's Day because we are honoring the death of St. Patrick who died on March the 17th uh, in what's purportedly to be 461 A.D. St. Patrick was born Magnus Sucatus Patricius. He lived in Britain when he was 16 years old. He was captured by Irish pirates who took him back to Ireland as a slave. And he was sold as a slave and forced to work as a pig herder. But it was in the midst of the squalor of the pig filth that God began to transform Patrick's heart. In his book entitled Confessions, Patrick wrote these words. He said, I was 16 and I knew not the true God, but in a strange land, the Lord opened my unbelieving eyes and I was converted. Patrick became convinced that his kidnapping and his homesickness for going back and being with his, his folks in his, uh, in his homeland of Britain were actually opportunities for him to get to know God even better. He says, anything that happens to me, whether pleasant or distasteful, I ought to accept with serenity, giving thanks to God who never disappoints. Now, six years after being kidnapped, when he was 22 years old, Patrick escaped and he was able to, to go back to Britain where he reconnected with his family, he reconnected with his uh, friends, he began to, to get on with his life. However, God was not done with Patrick. And, and Patrick was soon to realize that he was not done with the pagan people of Ireland either. Partially through a dramatic dream, Patrick realized that God was calling him to return to Ireland, not as a slave, but as a herald of the gospel. And in AD 432, despite protests from his family and his friends, Patrick used his own money to purchase a boat and he sailed back to Ireland and there he spent the remainder of his life preaching the gospel, watching many come to faith in Christ. And for the rest of his life, Patrick would, would remain captivated by God's grace to him. In fact, in his book, Confessions, he wrote this. He says, I'm certain of this. I was a dumb stone lying squashed in the mud. The mighty and merciful God came and dug me out and set me on top of the wall. And therefore I praise him and ought to render him something for his wonderful benefits to me both now and in eternity. What a testimony. What a testimony. If you've been with us over the last few weeks, you know that we've been studying through the book of Genesis. And as we've studied through the book of Genesis, what we've been focusing our time on most recently is on the life of Jacob. 
And this morning we're going to find ourselves looking at chapter 32 of the book of Genesis. So if you want to turn there, while you are though, this is the one thing that I would say. There's some parallels that I see between the life of Jacob and the life of of, of St. Patrick. You see, Jacob knew what it was like to face trouble just like Patrick did. He knew what it was like to be enslaved in a foreign land just like Patrick did. And he also, as we will see this morning, Jacob knew what it was like to have no inherent claim upon God's grace and mercy, but to recognize that God was good to him simply because God was good. And what's interesting about that is that recognition of God's unmerited favor reminds us of who God is. It reminds us of God's nature, and it reminds us of why we can trust him even now in the midst of our own troubles and even in the midst of our own fears. If you've got your Bibles, let's look there in in Genesis chapter 32. I'm going to read down through verse 21 of this passage. Follow along with me in your own versions there. So Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. When Jacob saw them, he says, this is God's camp. And he called the name of that place Mahanaim. Then Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. And he commanded them, saying, Speak thus to my lord Esau. Thus says your servant Jacob, I have dwelt with Laban and stayed there until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, and male and female servants, and I have sent to tell my Lord that I may find favor in your sight. Then the messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he also is coming to meet you. And 400 men are with him. So Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed, and he divided the people that were with him, and the flocks, and the herds, and the camels, into two companies. And he said, if Esau comes to the one company and attacks it, then the other company which is left will escape. And then Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, the Lord who said to me, return to your country and to your family and I will deal well with you. I'm not worthy of the least of all the mercies and all the truth which you have shown your servant. For I crossed over this Jordan with my staff, and now I have become two companies. Deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, lest he come and attack me and the mother with the children. For you said, I will surely treat you well and make your descendants as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. So he lodged there that same night and took what came to his hand as a present for Esau, his brother. 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milk camels with their colts, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 foals. Then he delivered them to the hand of his servants, every drove by itself, and said to his servants, pass over before me and put some distance between successive droves, And he commanded the first one, saying, When Esau, my brother, meets you and asks you, saying, To whom do you belong and where are you going? Whose are these in front of you? Then you shall say, They are your servant, Jacob's. It is a present sent to my Lord Esau. Behold, he also is behind us. 
So he commanded the second and the third and all who followed the drove, saying, In this manner you shall speak to Esau when you find him. And also say, Behold, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he said, I will appease him with the present that goes before me. And afterward, I will see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present went on over before him. But he himself lodged that night in the camp. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we thank you for your goodness and for your mercy and for this day that you've given us and for this people who have come together to open their Bibles and Father, to, to hear your word read and now, Father, to listen to a time of expounding upon that word and I pray that you would bless our time together this morning, that our knowledge of you might increase but also that it might impact the way that we live and the way that we approach the difficulties in which we face in this life. So I pray that this would all be done for your glory and for your honor. This is my prayer in Christ's holy name. Amen. As I, uh, as I studied this passage this week, I could not help but notice that every scene in this passage is centered around a meeting that occurred. To begin with, the angels of God, they met Jacob as Jacob was on his way back into the promised land. And then, then Jacob sends messengers out to go meet with Esau. And then they return saying, well, that's all fine and good, but Esau's coming to meet with you, Jacob. And then that creates fear so that Jacob then meets with God in prayer. And then he prepares for the looming meeting that's going to take place with his brother Esau. Now that's just in what we read this morning, but if you go on, the last part of this chapter deals with, with Jacob being met by a man who wrestled with him all night long. And then chapter 33 tells us that Esau begins his way and he meets these droves one after the next of the presents that Esau sent to him before he finally meets with Jacob. Now I don't know about you, but Meetings tend to always create anxiety in me. I think maybe that's the case because I once had a boss that I worked for who whenever he said he needed to meet with you, rarely did that ever turn out to be a positive meeting. If it was positive, he just showed up in your office. But if he called and said he needed to meet with you, that, that typically was not a good thing. And so the anxiety that I feel about meetings has caused this passage to have an ominous feel to it. Now you may not have such anxiety about meetings and that's okay, but nevertheless you can begin to understand that there was, there was a lot riding on these meetings from what we've already read this morning. This, this section, particularly uh, verses 1 through 21, described for us uh, a lot of anxiety and a lot of distress in the life of Jacob. But before we get there, we have the first two verses, and the first two verses describe the very first meeting, and it's where the angels of God meet with Jacob. And so notice the very first point on your outline that I want us to see this morning, and it's this. This was an awesome and reassuring vision for Jacob. It was an awesome and reassuring vision. Now, you may be thinking, well, so why, would that, why is that such an ominous thing? Well, it is reassuring. It was, it was designed to be reassuring to Jacob, but before it was reassuring it, was likely to be very alarming and very ominous. Nowhere do you ever find in Scripture that humans ever encounter 
angels, that there is not some fear and trepidation that is produced within the human. Because the human recognizes that they are, they are coming in contact with something otherworldly. They're coming in contact with something that has great power and, and is sent on a divine mission. And so in, in, in all of those situations that you ever see, men and women would fall down as if they were dead before God whenever they would encounter an angel. So here, Jacob is on his way, but he encounters these angels of God. Now, the issue about that is, is that the only other time that we see that phrase used, angels of God, is back in chapter 28. In chapter 28, Jacob was in the, 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 the land of Bethel, where he, what he had named it Bethel, because there he encountered God. Now, if you recall, it was the ladder that had stretched all the way from earth to the sky, and at the top of the ladder was where God resided. And up and down that ladder, up and down that stairway, ascended and descended the angels of God. And Jacob noted that they were going out into the earth, doing the bidding of God, accomplishing his will. Now, in that particular time, Jacob saw that while he was in a dream. But back here in chapter 32, as he's about to cross over the Jordan River and go back into the land of promise, he encounters these angels while he's wide awake. Now, here's the issue. Did anyone else see the angels or was it only Jacob? We're not told. We're only interested that Moses is only interested in telling us the story of Jacob. Furthermore, we're not told how many there are, but we are given a clue we're given a clue here. He says this is God's camp. Now that word camp in Hebrew is a word that is often translated as host, as in a mighty host of angels, which indicates that it was a large number of angels that Jacob encountered. He also named that place Mahanaim, which literally means the place of two camps. And what many scholars are, would, would say is, is that Jacob knew how big his camp was. I mean, we know he had at least 550 animals. We know he had all of those wives and all of those kids and all those male and female servants. He had a camp that was large, but now this angelic camp also came, came along and it was equally large. So it was the place of two camps. Here's the real question that comes to us. Why? Why did this camp of angels meet Jacob? What was the purpose of their meeting? What did their presence signify? Well, being that God had promised to be with Jacob and to bring him back to his homeland, well, now as he approached that boundary that separated him from actually crossing in, then Jacob would have been reminded by this, this camp of angels that God had protected him the entire time he had been gone. The entire time while he had gone to the land of Haran, this, this camp had been there protecting him. They had come before him and they had come after him. Just like we've sung this morning. Did you notice that that was sort of a, a common theme through a lot of our songs today? Blessed be the name of the Lord. He gives and he takes away. That's, that song is such an important song to remember because you understand that, that, that good times come in our lives and sometimes bad times come along. And guess what? Blessed be the name of the Lord is the constant among all that. God is good to us regardless of what our circumstances are. Then the choir sang that song, He Will Hold Me Fast. Through, through the good times of your life, through the negative times of your life, through the, through the moments when you're not sure that you're going to have enough strength to take the next step, God is there to hold you fast. Love lifted me. I was sinking deep in sin, far from the peaceful shore. 
but love lifted me again and again and again and again. Even we've sung it this morning. It's, it's the very thing that this camp of angels represented to Jacob. God has been there protecting you all along and he will continue to protect you. Now, why is that important? Because of what's about to take place. It was very important that Jacob be reminded of God's protection over him because something big was fixing to happen. Notice, notice according to verse 3, Jacob sends messengers before him to, to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, in the country of Edom. Now, a couple of writers that I read this week, both of them came across with the same sort of understanding. If you can just imagine, last week we looked when, when Jacob was finally able to shake off Laban. He was finally able to get out from underneath Laban and all of the oppression that he had experienced for 20 years underneath Laban having had him as one of his own indentured servants and then taking advantage of him again and again and again. Well, now he's finally on his way home. And you can just imagine, man, how excited he was to finally be rid of Laban and rid of all of that that was taking place in the land of Haran. But then with every step that he took, he was retracing the same steps that had brought him to Haran to begin with. And with every step that he retraced, he was remembering why he left his homeland to begin with. And so with every step, the same name continued to come up. Esau. 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 Have you ever had a meeting that you really dreaded? You knew it was out there on the calendar in front of you and you're like, I really don't want to go to this meeting, but oh, it's two weeks away. It's fine right now. It's, it's good. And then week one rolls past, and now you've got just a week left. And you, oh, man, I really don't want to go to this meeting. I really would prefer not to make this. And then, and then you know, it's two days away. And then it's the day of the meeting, and it's like 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And that is the longest day of the year because you are dreading this. I can just imagine that that's exactly how it was as Jacob made his way back because he knew he had to settle things with his brother. Now, here's how we know that that was working in his mind. Remember, he has gotten to the point of almost going into the promised land and he's renamed the area where he's at Mahanaim, the land of two camps. And that where he is at is north and east of Bethel where he had met with God. And Bethel is where he's coming back to. In between him and Bethel is the Jordan River and the Dead Sea. He realizes he wants to get here. Do you know where Edom is in the land of Seir? It's down here. It's south and it's east of Bethel. There was geographically no reason whatsoever why Jacob would go to the land of Edom and to go to the land of Seir where his brother was except for the fact that he knew he needed to make things right with his brother. He needed to reconcile. All of that dreading that had been building up with him, all of the reminders that had been sent his way of the way that he had treated his brother so poorly by stealing his blessing and by taking his birthright and by deceiving his father, all of those things were running through his mind. But he knew he needed to make things right with his brother. In many respects, if you remember back in chapter 28, when, when, 
when Jacob had encountered God to begin with and he'd named that place the house of God, Bethel, and he had set up the pillar there and anointed it, he had made this vow. When I come here, I will give a tenth of all that I have given to you. Now, at that particular point in time, Jacob didn't have anything to give. That's not the case on his way back. But before he goes to Bethel, to give a gift to God, he realizes he has to make things right with his brother. And many have pointed out this is exactly the same pattern that Jesus Christ himself said that we as Christians ought to follow in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 23 and 24, he says, Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way and first be reconciled to your brother and then come and give your gift. So in many respects, Jacob is following what would wind up becoming a New Testament paradigm for all Christian believers right here. And I believe that it shows us that he has matured over these 20 years that he has been in exile from his own homeland. But notice what happens next. Notice the next point on your outline. The second point is simply this. We see a fearful and distressing message. A fearful and distressing message. Jacob's men go and deliver the message that Jacob sent them to deliver to Esau, which was effectively just to let him know, look, I want you to know I'm coming to see you, but I don't need anything from you. I've got plenty. I'm not coming to take anything from you. I, I took from you before. I'm not coming to take now. I'm coming in peace. And so he sends his messengers out as sort of an envoy to go in front of him. But we're not sure if that envoy actually gets to Esau first and delivers the message or if he meets or if they meet Esau already coming to meet Jacob. The, the, the Hebrew is just not clear. Here's what, here's what is clear. Verse 6 that envoy comes back and says, we came to your brother Esau and he's coming to meet you. Oh, and he's got 400 of his closest friends coming with him. Now you can just almost see the blood just drain out of his face. Why would Esau bring 400 men unless he was coming to battle? That's the only reason why you would do that. And, and so Moses says that Jacob was greatly afraid and he was distressed he was sure that Esau's anger continued to burn toward him and he was obviously petrified. So the first thing that Jacob did was he, 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 he said, pragmatically, I'm going to look at my, my camp, my big camp, and I'm going to divide it into two. And, and Leah, you and, you and yours go over that side and, and Rachel, you and yours go over there and, and I need to split up all my animals into, into two camps. And the reason that I'm going to do that is because when he comes, he's going to have to decide to turn one way or the other. And when he turns that one, one direction, at least the other camp will get away free. And thereby he's able to protect at least some of what he had had. Now, here's the thing. Many have, many have criticized Jacob for his actions here. After all, they, they asked, well, didn't he realize that that other camp was still there, the other camp of angels, the angels that had protected him for those 20 years? Did he just forget about all of that? Didn't he remember that God had watched over him and had gone before him and had come behind him? Was he going back to leaning on his own understanding instead of acknowledging God's ways and doing that? You know, I'd love to ask those questions. I would love to have him to say, what were you thinking, Jacob? But here's the thing. Moses doesn't give us any kind of indication. Honestly, I'm not quite ready to throw Jacob under the bus, though. I'm not quite ready to say, here we go again. Here's Jacob just trusting in himself, doing things his way rather than God's way. And the reason that I'm not quite ready to do that is because of this prayer that he prays 
beginning in verse 9. And it leads me to the third point that I want you to see. It is a humble and believing prayer that Jacob prays. A very humble and believing prayer. In verses 9 through 12, it's the longest prayer that we have recorded that Jacob ever prays to God. And it's a prayer that really is a model for us. Particularly, when you are facing trouble, when you are facing fear about something that is coming your way, this prayer is a wonderful prayer to model your own prayers after. Let me read it for you again, beginning in verse 9. He says, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, the Lord who said to me, Return to your country and to your family and I will deal well with you. I am not worthy of the least of all the mercies and all the truth. Really a better translation is faithfulness, which you have shown your servant. For I crossed over this Jordan with my staff and now I have become two companies. Deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother and from the hand of Esau. For I fear him lest he come and attack me and the mother with the children. For you said, I will surely treat you well and make your descendants as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. I want you to notice how Jacob begins. He begins by, by calling on God and by acknowledging who God really is. He, he, he addressed the Lord as the God of his father Abraham and the God of his father Isaac. And in doing that, that is significant because it actually acknowledges that God is the one and only true God, the covenant-keeping God, the one who makes promises and then keeps them. And Jacob prays to the God who always, always, always remembers his promises. That's how he addresses God to begin with. And then that is precisely what Jacob goes on to remind God of in this prayer. He not only addresses God correctly, but Jacob also reminded God that he was where he was because he was following in obedience to what God had told him to do. He says, you told me to go back to my homeland. I have, and that's why I'm here. But then you also promised you would deal kindly with me. But then notice the humility of Jacob's prayer. He states unequivocally, he says, I am not worthy of all that you have done for me. Particularly in light of those memories of what he had, how he had acted so shamefully with his brother and with his father and all of those floods of things that he had done there and how he had taken advantage of those situations, Jacob recognized how unworthy of God's blessings he had truly been. All of God's kindness, all of his faithfulness to Jacob had been unmerited. Not only that, but notice that Jacob says, Lord, when I crossed over this Jordan 20 years ago, all I had was the staff in my hand. And now look. Look at all that you've blessed me with. Everything I've gotten divided up into two companies. Jacob's not trying to take credit for anything. He's giving God credit for everything, and he's acknowledging God's grace. And so Jacob has addressed God by properly calling him who he is. He has pled with God based upon the promises that God has made to him. And now he has acknowledged that God is not his debtor, that he does not owe him anything. And then with all that, having come before, Jacob then begins to beg for help. He says, God, save me. Deliver me. I pray that you will... Take me out of the hand of Esau, my brother, because I fear him. I fear that he is not only going to come kill me, but that he's also going to kill the mother with the children. Now, that's an important point to understand because recognize that Jacob's prayer is not just self-centered. 
He's not just concerned about himself. He's concerned about his family, but that's even more riding on that. He's concerned about his family because he knows the promise that God had made. God had said, in you all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. If, if Esau comes and strikes him down, and not only him, but the mother with the children, there will be no blessing left for all the nations of the earth to come to. And so Jacob is appealing to God based upon the truth that God has revealed to him. Brothers and sisters, when we too are in our moments of despair, when we are in our moments of fear and trepidation, we go to God and appeal to him on the basis of his promises and the basis of his word. And we appeal to Jesus Christ who has been given to us as the satisfaction of our sins. So, Jacob's prayer was a prayer of faith, and in it he was counting on God to do what God had promised. It was a, a prayer of humility, and it was a prayer of belief. And that's why I just don't simply throw Jacob under the bus as it, as it relates to his actions in this chapter. Faith and trust in God and in his plans and in his promises do not necessarily mean that we don't take actions and that we don't prepare to do certain things as well. That does not mean that we embrace the unbiblical and heretical proverb that is not in the Bible, where many people believe it is. It says God helps those who help themselves. That is not there in the scriptures. Listen, the gospel is the absolute opposite of that. God helps those who cannot help themselves. So understand that, but when we come to the Lord empty-handed and seeking help, we do so believing that he will provide help. And furthermore, we do so ready and willing to do whatever we need to do to bring his plans to pass, which is how I interpret the final act of this passage. Note the last point on your outline this morning. It's this. We see a costly and pacifying plan. A costly and pacifying plan. Did you, did you get a count of how many animals that he sent as a gift? 200 male goats, excuse me, female and 20 male goats 200 ewes and 20, lamb, 20 rams, 30 milk camels and, and all of their young, 40 cows, 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys, 10 male donkeys. If you add all that up, you come up in excess of 550 animals. Somebody tried to put a value on that, and they came up with a total estimated value of $654,960. So to say the least, whether that's accurate or not, it was a very costly gift that Jacob sent in front of him to Esau. But it was not just the costliness of that gift. It is also the way in which he prepared the gift to be given that ought to be noted. He separates all these animals into different droves. Maybe he separated them out by each individual kind of animal. Maybe he separated them out into groups. He doesn't specifically say. What he does say is he tells his men that are going to drive them up toward Esau who is advancing on him with his 400 men. He says, here's what happens. When you get to him, you tell him, look, these are Jacob's and he's sending them to you, his Lord, and Jacob's coming behind us. And then when he passes through there, the next drove's going to hit him and say, look, these are from our, these are, this is from your servant Jacob. He's giving them as a gift to you and he's coming behind us. And then drove after drove after drove would hit Esau and his men as they made their way toward Jacob. And then in verse 20, we read this. We are given the reason for that. He says, I will appease Esau with the present that goes before me, and afterward I will see his face, and perhaps he will accept me. 
In his commentary on this passage, Derek Kidner says this. He says, Jacob's approach of Esau is an illustration of the way that humans tend to approach God. Jacob approached Esau by sending wave after wave of gifts to him, hoping to appease his wrath and pacify him. Kidner notes that humans tend to do the same thing. They believe that they need to appease God in order to get God to bless him. They, they need to do something good. They need to engage in good actions. They need to give money to the church or provide gifts to charitable organizations or do all kinds of things that, that they can show God how good they are and hopefully they'll swing God's opinion of them away from being something that's negative, filled with wrath, to something that's positive, filled with kindness. And as such, they will be able to balance out their sins in the scales of heaven. I want you to know that's not how Jacob approaches God. And you know that by the prayer that Jacob prayed. He says, I don't deserve anything that you've given me. I could never earn anything that you've given me. Jacob does not approach God that way, but he does approach Esau that way. And why? Well, I think it's pretty simple. Jacob knew Esau wasn't God. And he knew that Esau, he had, he had stolen from him, he had taken from him, and now he's trying to get Esau back on his side. Listen, the unbeliever knows that he has done things that God will hold him accountable for. The unbeliever knows that because of his actions and because of the very thoughts of his mind that God can hold him accountable and ought to condemn him. But instead of fleeing to the mercy of God, the unbeliever often tries unsuccessfully to appease God by trying to win him over by trying to do certain things. And he thinks, if I can do enough good things to compensate for the bad things that I've done, then maybe God will accept me. But I want you to know on, a, on the authority of God's word, that is not the way that God deals with the unbeliever. You can never do enough good things to earn God's favor. You can never work hard enough in order to find yourself in God's good stead. As a matter of fact, all other earthly religions lead toward that exact same goal. I've got to work to do enough good so that I can balance out the bad and the negative in my life. And what happens is it gets us on that rat wheel that we just run and run and run and run, attempting to try to do better. But you will never be, have any assurance that you will ever be able to do enough. You will always wonder, do I need to do one more thing? How much more should I do in order to satisfy God's demand against my sin? But the scriptures claim, clearly proclaim that that is not the way of faith. That is not the good news. The good news is not that you have to work for it. The good news is that Jesus died on the cross and proclaimed to the world, it is finished. And in doing that, Jesus Christ settled every debt that ever needed to be paid. His death satisfied God's righteous and holy demands against sin. And every single person who will humbly come before him and bow their knee to him and confess him as Savior and Lord, will be saved and will be forgiven of their sins. And that's where our assurance comes from. It does not come from our doing and our striving. It comes from what Jesus Christ has done. It does not come from our worth. It comes from His worth. It doesn't come from our credit. It comes from His credit. Shakespeare wrote this one time. He says, Conscience, however, doth make cowards of us all. I believe Jacob's conscience remembered all the wrong that he had done to his brother. And I think it raised within him a terror of what Esau might do to him. But as we see, 
It was this fear. It was this looming approach of Esau that caused Jacob to own up to his own sinful dealings with his brother. And it is that vulnerability that caused Jacob to turn to God and to once more express his faith in God's promises that God had made to him. Now, what we want to know is how does this end? We want to know, do the brothers reconcile? How does this whole thing come about? What what do we do? Well, you're going to have to come back to hear the rest of that. Lord willing, we'll eventually be able to come to get to those answers. But before we do, we actually see how God gets Jacob alone and he wrestles with him. I grew up in North Hall County. We wrestled up there. There's a wrestling match that's coming up next week. I'm going to wrestle you in a minute. (laughs) For the moment, however, in this passage, the tension is still there. We don't know how it's going to turn out. And here's the point. Some of y'all are sitting in the chair that you're sitting in right now. And you've got some tension in your own life. You don't know how things are going to turn out either. You're facing some difficult times. You don't know exactly how it's going to turn out. You're fearful about what's coming in front of you. Maybe you've got a meeting that's coming up. Maybe it's it's along the same lines. You're trying to, there's a reconciliation that needs to take place between you and someone else, and you're dreading it, and you don't know how it's going to turn out, and you're not sure. Some of you may be facing medical issues that you really have no idea how that's going to end up. Fear that has been created within you is not something that you really know how to deal with. And for right now, it's out there and you don't know what to do with it. For some of you, it may have to do more with your finances or with your job or stability in your life. And everything is upside down and you're just not sure. And so we live with this tension that this text creates within us right now. But here's what I want you to know. As the study of Genesis has continued to proclaim to us once and again and again and again. It's just what the psalmist prayed to God. The psalmist said this, when I am afraid, I will trust in you. That is the overarching theme. Dave said to me last week as we left, he says, do you get the idea that it's the same thing that you hear proclaimed over and over again in this text? And I said, yes. And the reason that I think that you hear it over and over again is because we need to be reminded of it over and over and over again. And that's what brings me to my sermon in a sentence this morning, which is this. Faith demands that when trouble comes, we not be overwhelmed with fear by forgetting the one who keeps his promises to us because of his grace, not our merit. I don't know what you're facing today. I don't know what troubles come your way, but I do know the one who calls you to trust in him. I do know that just as Jacob prayed, he is the God who keeps his promises. He is the one who will never leave you and will never forsake you. He is the one who stands behind you and the one who goes before you. And if you do not have a personal relationship with him, then the fact is you you can have no real peace in the middle of the trouble that you face. You may be trying desperately to to find a way to placate and to satisfy all of the various entities and even deities that you've created in your own life out there. God calls you to stop striving. 
and instead to place your faith in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who says to me, who says to us, come to, unto me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Would you do that today? Would you lay your burdens down before the Lord, acknowledging that his grace and his mercy are undeserved? And if you'll do that, then he will give you his grace and he will give you his mercy. And you, just like St. Patrick, can say, though I may be a dumb stone lying squashed in the mud, the mighty and merciful God has dug me out and set me on a wall. Brothers and sisters, that is good news for folks like me and you. And that is the message of his holy word this morning.